Good morning. Yeah, thank you. Stand for the reading of God's word. We're reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 13. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. This is the word of the Lord. Like many of you, I love the beauty of fall colors. There's one particular tree that you, uh, as far as I know, don't see in Indiana. But this tree is uh, beautiful in Colorado and other places. Here's a picture of the tree, if uh, we can get that up there. That's an aspen tree. More appropriately, it's an aspen grove because even though it looks like it, they're not individual trees. Yes, they are, but they aren't. Take a look at this next picture. It describes something of the aspen tree, and I know you can't see that very well, so I'll read it for you. Um, This pando a colonial colony of single male quaking aspen. It's the largest single organism on earth. Think about that for a minute. The largest single organism on earth. A colony of genetically identical tree shearing one root system. The total mass of this single colony is estimated to be 6,000, 6 million kilograms. This is, one organism is estimated to be around 80,000 years old. Now, I want to advance to the next slide. It's not a real picture. It's a sketch by a biologist to help you understand what an aspen grove is. It's not exact, but you can see from it that no tree is its own. They're all intertwined. It's one single organism. I use that picture and I ask you to hold it in your mind as we consider 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told that the body of Christ is one 
We're told that the body of Christ has many members. We're told, in effect, that the body of Christ is diversity in unity or unity in diversity. Not unlike an Aspen colony. Just a little bit of context for the epistle to the Corinthians. At the beginning of the epistle to the Corinthians, we read these words in chapter 1, verse 4 and following. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. The Corinthians might not have been the only deeply gifted community that Paul wrote to. But in an interesting way, he's singling them out as particularly gifted. What kind of giftedness was going on among them? Well, there were all kinds of gifts, as you'll see. But I want to read you something else that was a problem for the Corinthians. The problem for the Corinthians is they were divided. Some of them followed Paul, some of them followed Apollos, some of them followed Peter. Paul says that's not right. All your diversity should be united around Jesus Christ. And then he says... In verse 18, you also have a problem because you have forgotten that all the wisdom of the world, and they were into philosophy and the mystery religions, none of it compares to the one singular foolish wisdom of God in Christ. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentile, but to those whom God has called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why would he make such a comment? He's just told them they're really gifted and he's proud of that. What he's essentially saying is your giftedness can be your worst enemy. You can focus on your own gift and use your gift to actually divide your community. Now, one other thing about the context of the Corinthian church, they were heavily influenced by what has often been called the mystery religions in Corinth and in other parts of the Roman Empire. The mystery religions, in effect very truncated version of mystery religions, is that there was a certain kind of wisdom and revelation you could attain. And most of the time, 
the way you attained it was to fall into some kind of worship trance so that you were elevated to a level that was above common knowledge. Most people didn't get it, but you had a special gift to understand and see visions and declare truth. Paul doesn't actually suggest that there is no such thing as wisdom outside the church. But he does say the wisdom of God is much different than most of the mystery religions suggest. Most of the people you've been influenced by. Because the wisdom of God is the foolishness of the cross. The wisdom of God just tears down the construction of wisdom itself. It's foolish. Why would God become human? Why would God die on a cross? That is the wisdom of God. So Paul says, whatever you do, however you're gifted, you always go back to that foundation because it's foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God to you. Now, when Paul speaks about the gifts of the Spirit, he tells them that there is diversity in unity. Why? Because we serve the same Lord. All the diversity contributes to service to God. Second, he says diversity in unity again. Diversity in unity actually exists for the purpose of serving the church, which is Christ's body on the earth. So you have this diversity in unity because the unity is singular in its service, Christ and his kingdom. Then he goes on to name the gifts. And let me add that these gifts are not exhaustive. These gifts are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Romans 12 that we looked at last week has other gifts, and there's still more gifts listed in other parts of Scripture. And not only that, but Paul is not suggesting that the lists of gifts in the Scripture are all the gifts that people have. He's just identifying some key elements of this particular community. The first gift he speaks of is wisdom. (laughs) Wisdom seems to be Uh, as we understand it, some kind of special discernment in particular situations. Some of you have that, he says. It's often, what is this person like? It's often the kind of person who sees beyond the facts. Doesn't ignore the facts, but has a deep understanding of how the facts ought to be applied. It's a mysterious kind of thing. The person just seems to know something that is not apparent on the surface. The point is, if you're a person of wisdom, you're a person who says, yeah, I get it. Here's the facts. Here's the doctrine. Here's the truth. Now, what do we do with it? How do we apply it? I've met a number of people in my life who were just known for their gift of wisdom. And one of them was my father. As a leader of a Christian community, most all his adult life, he had the ability to listen well, not speak a lot, and then offer a suggestion that just seemed profoundly wise. 
Some of you have the gift of wisdom, says Paul. On the other hand, some of you have the gift of knowledge. It's the ability, let's say, to collect large amounts of information and knowledge. It's the ability to collect it all. It's, it's that, that high IQ, shall we say, that seems to be able to bring it all together. Or don't you know those people that you went to school with who frustrate the daylights out of you because all they have to do is hear it one time, and it's there? Imagine that as a kind of gift of knowledge. They just get it. They're not specialists. They're not just focused on one thing. They have this wide breadth of knowledge. They kind of see it all and can integrate it. They have the ability to understand complex things. I I don't want to name anybody, but I'm thinking of a few people right now in this church that are like that. You just have a breadth of knowledge. It's remarkable. Paul also says there is such a thing as the gift of faith. It's basically in simplistic terms, believing that God will supply your needs. Believing that God will supply the needs of the church. This is the kind of person who is not inclined to be worried about the future. This is the kind of person who is not inclined to put all the details together. This is the kind of person that says, based on the knowledge we have and based on the wisdom that somebody has concerning direction, we need to trust God. Because God is going to supply our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Historically, there's people who, who, who are just known for this. Uh, some of you may know the name George Mueller. He founded an orphanage in uh, England. George Mueller didn't have anything to speak of. He had no resources to speak of. He didn't have big contributors that he could count on. He didn't do a fundraising campaign to establish an orphanage. He just said, I think God's calling me to help the orphans. And routinely, he would not have things to feed the orphans for the next day. And he would wake up and go to the front porch and find food and milk on the step. And that's how he lived. Some people just have that kind of faith. In modern-day circumstances, I I think of my friend David Menza, one of our missionaries, who just seems to have the faith. He's not unorganized. He's not haphazard. But he has a vision, and he says, I think we can build a hospital in northern Ghana. And I tell you, most people said, that's impossible. Where are you going to get the money? And his answer is always, God will supply our needs. That hospital's been built and I visited it. It was put together with people's hard-earned money. People who had gigantic sums of money gave to that hospital. But nobody thought it was going to happen except David. He just said, God's going to supply our needs. And he did. You may have that gift of faith. You may have said, Paul, have the gift of healing. The gift of healing, the gift to 
heal physical maladies. And he, he primarily means the supernatural gift to lay on hands and, and experience that malady disappearing by the power of the Spirit. We think of the apostles when we think of this most often because in the first century they would lay hands on people like Jesus did and heal them. And it had nothing to do with medicine. It was just a miraculous healing. I, I would add to that that some folks, even if you don't identify yourself as one who has the gift of healing physical maladies, you have another kind of gift of healing. And that gift is to heal people's hearts, their emotions. I've watched it happen hundreds of times. When people are distraught and they're in the presence of that person who has a healing gift, something changes by the mysterious power of God. Some of you have that gift. Some of you, says Paul, have the gift of miraculous powers. I I don't think these miraculous powers would be random acts of power. Certainly wouldn't be that. They'd be for a purpose. They are often associated with healing, but could be other things as well in the New Testament. And we must be aware of the fact that some people possess certain kinds of powers and are outside the circumference of the community and outside the circumference of God's grace. You may remember in the book of Acts on one occasion, Paul was going about, when Paul, Peter, and other disciples were going about healing people and casting out demons. And one man named Simon, who happened to be a mystery guy, a sorcerer of sorts, watched all this and was profoundly shaken by what Peter was able to do and said, please, give me that gift. I'll pay you for it. Peter didn't take well to that comment. He said, let your money perish with you. This is the gift of God. Don't even start with me. There are people who seem to have sort of a miraculous power and it could be manipulated. There's the gift of prophecy. You might think of prophecy as foretelling and it was sometimes in the scripture, but equally prophecy was exhorting. So you think of a person who did foretelling as prophecy, you might think of Isaiah. You think of a person who was an exhorter who called out the nation of Israel, you might think of Elijah or Elisha. It's also said by most scholars in the New Testament that this passage refers to those who are gifted to preach either up front or other places in such a way that conviction falls on other people. A prophetic gift, a gift called distinguishing spirits, whether a speaker is authentic, whether that speaker is real, if he's speaking what seems to be a word of God. There's the gift of speaking in tongues, sometimes called other languages. Other times you might refer to it as a prayer language. On the day of Pentecost, it was clearly other languages as they were given utterance. But 
Uh, this is one of those gifts that became very controversial in the church. And many people called cessationists said that that gift was gone along with the gift of healing. It didn't happen anymore. I, so you know, disagree. I don't think they're gone at all. So you know, I know some of you speak in tongues. And that's just fine. God has given you that gift. He didn't give you that gift to disrupt a worship service, but he gave you that gift. As a matter of fact, Paul, when addressing the gift of tongues, said, I speak in tongues more than any of you. Do you think about Paul speaking in tongues? That's not the first thing that comes to mind for me, but apparently he did. There's also the gift of interpreting tongues to decide what the other is saying if it sounds like pure babble. There are other various gifts that are not listed here, some in Romans 12, some in Ephesians. Let me just mention a few of them before we conclude. One is teaching, the gift of teaching. It doesn't make any difference how intelligent you are. We all know this. That doesn't make you a good teacher. It doesn't make any difference what a great athlete you are. It's not necessarily so that you'd be a great coach. Did you ever wonder why Michael Jordan is not a coach? (laughs) He could do it, but he can't teach it, and he knows it. If you have the gift of teaching, you should commit yourself to it. You should own it. You should try to always do it better. Maybe you have the gift of leading. Take that responsibility seriously. When people automatically turn to you in a context, don't get puffed up. Just say, what can I do for the others? Maybe you have the gift of administration. Just keeping everything going in the right direction, making sure you got a timetable, making sure everybody's on the same page, making sure the calendar works. I'll I'll tell you two people who have the gift of administration on this staff, and otherwise, if they weren't present, it would be pure chaos around here. It's Amy Hendershot and Lynn Snyder. Yeah. It's very likely that if there's anything on my calendar, I didn't put it there. (laughs) Lynn or Amy did. I mean, I put some things on it. They keep us well-ordered. Thank God for the gift of administration. There's the gift of encouraging. If you have the gift of encouragement, then you ought to be looking for the need. Be aware. See someone with a crestfallen face. Know someone who's going through difficulty and encourage them. Here's one you wouldn't expect. The gift of wealth. We all know money doesn't grow on trees. But we also know people who seem to be able to produce trees where money grows. (laughs) Right? You know what Paul says about that? He says this explicitly. If you have money, if you are wealthy, your responsibility is to share it. 
Why? Because just like with all the other gifts, they're not for you. None of these gifts are for you. They're for others. Paul ends the passage that we didn't read by giving us an image of the body. You know, hand, foot, ear, mouth, eyes, all that kind of thing. And he says, how stupid would it be if the eye said to the foot, I don't need you, or the arm said to the leg, I don't need you, and you can extrapolate from there. How dumb would that be? Every part of the body is important. And then, of course, he makes the analogy to the members of the body of Christ, the church. And he says, in effect, some of your feet, some of your hands, some of your eyes, some of you are just way different than everybody else. And we need all of you. You know, we need uh, the cerebral members of a church, the thinkers, the eggheads, the brainiacs. Why? Well, we need to get it right, but another reason that we need them is because they drive the feelers crazy. And the feelers should be driven crazy by them, but they shouldn't push them aside. We need the feelers because the cerebral people drive them crazy. Stop thinking about it. This is just the thing to do. I feel it. Or why do you have to talk, 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 Bob? I'd rather just listen to the congregation sing because that elevates my worship. We need the evangelists. Among other reasons, because some of us are too private to share our faith. We just kind of keep it to ourselves and expect that somehow we'll have an opportunity. So we need the evangelists that are pushing us and saying, it's your responsibility to share the gospel. We need the administrators because people of faith are not inclined to details. They just have a big idea. And they think it'll work out. And even when it does, it's likely somebody else doesn't work. We need the administrators. We need the encouragers. Because some people only think about the truth. When I say that, I feel conviction, and I realize how much I need so many of you, because I can just dig down and think about the truth. And someone says to me, will you please just give us a word of encouragement out of the truth? We need each other. Um, in conclusion, how is this different than a typical personality test, right? An Enneagram or one of those things, which are all wonderful. There's three ways in which this is entirely different. Obviously, they're similar, but there's three ways in which this is entirely different. The first is that we acknowledge that our disposition, our giftedness comes from God. 
we say the reason we're wired that way is because God gave us this gift. Not just because our brain works a certain way. God is the author of all things. And if you have that gift, it's a gift from God. You may say, well, I didn't know about God and I had the gift. Well, good for you. You know God is sovereign after all, right? Even if you don't believe, he knit you together. So the first way it's different than a typical personality test, it acknowledges that God created us this way. Second way it's different than a typical personality test, it's not. I wish I could say this 10 times without boring you. It is not, according to Paul, about self-actualization. It's not about you feeling good about yourself. It's not that. It's about, third, service to others. That's how it's different. First, it's about the sovereignty of God who gave you your gift. Second, it's not about self-actualization. And third, the key component is it's there so that you can serve others. It's not about you after all. It's about the other. So I ask you, as you hear this list, what do you suppose your spiritual gift is? They have tests. You know, but as someone reminded me I was reading this week, you know, for the first 19 centuries of the church, they didn't have tests for spiritual gifts, and they figured it out, okay? You don't have to take a test. If you want to take one, fine. I I would suggest something else. I would suggest you thinking about yourself and asking, what am I good at? What is my heart inclined towards? But don't stop there. Ask someone else. What do you see in me? Because sometimes people will affirm something that you didn't even recognize. And it will be a source of encouragement for you. So here's the parting word. The question is, how can you use your gift? That's it in a nutshell. You've got them. How can you use it? I think it goes to the heart of Jesus' teaching. When you're trying to find yourself, you're going to wander forever. But when you lose yourself for my sake and the gospel, you'll find yourself because you'll find yourself in service to a greater cause. So let's figure that one out, huh? Shall we? What's our gift? And how do we use it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gifts you've given us. We also thank you for the ones that uh, we haven't really recognized before that others may help us to recognize. And we pray you will help us cultivate those gifts. Give us a heart for others. Give us a heart for your church. Give us a heart to glorify God with the gifts we've been given. Because that's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ.
In your name we pray. Amen.